There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month, I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome back to the ongoing season three, the never-ending season three of the podcast. I hope it's going all right for everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in and joining me here in the world of podcast. My guest this month is the wicked guitarist, singer, songwriter, blues maestro, rock and roll kingpin, amp tweaker, pickup tweaker, pawn shopper extraordinaire, Mr. Alvin Youngblood Hart. All episodes of this podcast are brought to you from the Hen House Studio, just south of Nashville, Tennessee. It's my own place where I work recording and producing for bands and solo artists from all over the world. If you're in need of a recording or mixing facility or some tracks for your next project, feel free to check it out at thehenhousestudio.com, and you're always welcome to drop me a line about working together on your music, or if you'd like to comment on the podcast, feel free to reach out and contact me at steve at thehenhousestudio.com. Now, on to this month's episode. Alvin Youngblood Hart is a wicked artist that I first heard when his debut record came out, I believe, in 1996, Big Mama's Door. I loved the record, although, as you will hear today, he's not as, as crazy about it as I am. Anyway, I followed his career from there, and he put out some progressively more rock-oriented records that I also loved. They had elements of blues and funk and soul, but they were way more aggressive and loud and but still, yeah, like really oozing with soul. Um, they were just kind of a different path from his uh, first debut record. Uh, Down in the Alley and Motivational Speakers are really good examples of that and records that I love. Check those out. Um, I crossed paths with Alvin a couple of times, and I think we ended up playing together at a festival somewhere in the early 2000s. I'm not too clear on that. 
But uh, anyway, in about 2010, I put out a record that was a tribute to the great string band, the Mississippi Sheiks. And I knew Alvin was a fan of the Sheiks and did some of their music, and I tried to get him on it. And I can't remember why it didn't happen, but I seem to remember a manager or agent killing that idea. Total bummer. But anyway, shortly after that, uh, we did some live concerts, also paying tribute to the Mississippi Sheiks, and Alvin took part in those in Vancouver. And uh, then he came on tour with us, and we did the same thing, and uh, did some uh, did another tour with me a couple of years ago, um, playing more of his original music, and that was a blast. And he told me some great stories about touring with Bo Diddley, his days in the in the Coast Guard, uh, how he loves to tweak amps and all kinds of cool, crazy stuff. And uh, so eventually I convinced him to come on the show. He doesn't really love to speak about himself, uh, and he's a super humble dude, but I thought I'd try and rent some some good stuff out of him for you. And I think I did. Um, Alvin has continued touring all over the world and occasionally making cool solo records, 45s, and collaborating with people like Jimbo Mathis and Luther Dickinson from the North Mississippi All-Stars and other people. But those are a couple of guys that he ends up doing quite a bit of of stuff with. He's sort of soured on the whole concept of making records, as you'll hear. I think he's had some bad experiences. We don't go into that in super detail, but, but he's not chomping at the bit, although seems somewhat keen to make a record at some point in the future. Anyway, you can go to his website at ayhmusic.com and get info on all of his releases, tour dates. So go get some Alvin music. Go see an Alvin show. He lives in New Orleans these days, sometimes in Memphis, but mostly in New Orleans, and he plays around there a lot. But he's also on tour in Europe and um, other places occasionally. So make sure you check out his website, ayh.com, and go see him. Our conversation will be up in a minute. All right, now we need to take care of just a little bit of business before we get going. I want to tell you how you can get behind the show and support it. There's a bunch of ways to do it. Go to iTunes, subscribe, leave a comment, a good comment preferably, and spread the word. Tell all your friends. Uh, You can also financially support the podcast with a one-time donation, which is great, or by contributing monthly through our Patreon site. All that information is on my website at stevedawson.ca. You go to the podcast page, and right at the top are the two ways to contribute to the show. So if you want to consider doing that, that's a big help. Uh, also, this year we have t-shirts and maybe some other swag a little bit later as the season progresses. That's also at the same website, stevedawson.ca, podcast page. It's all right there at the top. Any of those ways that you feel inclined to help out the show would be greatly appreciated. And lastly, a word from this week's sponsors, Union, Tube, and Transistor. They have some new products coming down the line. First of all, they're doing a killer new guitar signal splitter called the GBX95. It allows you to split your guitar to up to 6 amps plus a DI, which is actually way harder to do than it should be. Very handy for recording multiple guitar amps. Next, they're about to release their 343 guitar amp. It features a very unique 10 and 12 inch speaker switching feature. You can run one or both speakers for tonal options. And finally, their lab compressor pedal is a little optical compressor and is killer both in front of a guitar amp or as a piece of outboard studio gear. I use one pretty much all the time. Head on over to uniontone.com to find out more. All right then, let's do this. Here is this month's episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Alvin. He doesn't. How are you, man? Uh, fairly well. Where have I caught you? Uh, are, you at, are you at home? I'm in New Orleans. Well, thanks for doing this, man. We can catch up as we're yapping. And uh, you don't like to um, talk too much about yourself, but I'm going to make you. Yeah, good luck. 
<laughs> the most important thing on everybody's mind is what kick-ass guitars have you found at pawn shops lately that you've turned into supreme rock machines? Man, you know, I haven't, I haven't been uh, getting much out of pawn shops lately. You know, I play pawn shop and it's kind of gone down the tubes. Um, really? Even like, in New Orleans, yeah. there, aren't, there aren't good pawn shops? Well, there's the odd piece here and there, you know, but like there, there came a time where like pawn shop, uh, pawn, the pawn shop guys started pricing their wares via eBay, you know, like, uh, right. You know, Hey, what do you want for this? And then I, Oh, wait a minute. Let me look that up. I'm like, well, I could have done that, man. You know, <laughs> um, yeah, what have I found lately? I don't know. Yeah. You know, I find stuff. It's weird where where I find stuff here and there. You know, I find a lot of stuff used online. You know, I've been I've been getting Do a lot. Do you, you order things? I've been getting a lot of like uh, you know, like Hondo guitars from the late seventies and stuff like that. You know, you pick up some of these like wicked, um, like knockoffs that that you've that kind of everyone kind of writes off as being like kind of crappy. <laughs> Yeah, made in the yeah, 80s yeah. and stuff but you find you find value in those and you turn them into wicked guitars yeah you know just a few a few part changes and a setup uh-huh. can do can do wonders you know are you so, are you a bit of a setup wizard yourself like do or do you have a guy or do you do it all yourself man you know i got a i got a little bit of a, a method to it you know i i learned a good yeah. bit of it uh i used to hang out in this place called subway guitars out in berkeley right sure Back in the uh, back in the early nineties, and that's where I kind of learned a lot of guitar mechanics in there. Yeah. You know, so so I, I was pretty. I'm pretty good at at at, at most of it. You know, if I get, you know, I, I was never that really that great on fretwork. You know, but I get uh, I get John Mooney to do a lot of fretwork for me around New okay. Orleans. But, yeah, I mean, you know, stuff will just. Just hard hardware stuff, you know, all that kind yeah. of thing. Uh, ge- oh, the, ge- the geometry of it all—that's the funny thing, man. You, if you had told me in the eleventh grade, you know, <laughs> that that I'd actually be using like the Pythagorean theorem to set up guitars, <laughs> whatever. Then, you would have paid it, some attention. Yeah, like you know, right? Like the application, you know, it, it all would have made sense if you'd have given me some mm-hmm. kind of practical application. So yeah, you know, so the, just that hardware, woodwork, and stuff like that, you know. Um, yeah, I can, yeah. I can, I can pretty much get a Hondo road ready. Or something, you know. Are you into like tokais and stuff as well? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I haven't had any for a while, like uh, Bernie's and toka, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, mostly, uh, you know, what did I get lately? Lately, I got like a set neck, a set neck Cortez Les Paul Custom, you know. Nice. Um, from, I guess, uh, probably the mid 70s or something, yeah. Um, Does it actually say Les Paul on it? No, no. Okay. It just says Cortez on it, but uh, okay. Yeah, I you know I I I, I was kind of a fan of like the, the Japanese. I used to go to Japan and I'd come back with some kind of cool Japanese left ball copy that you couldn't get here or something like that. Right. Know? But um, yeah, it's just all, all kind of usual, just usual junk, man. You know, lots of Hondos, a couple, couple weird uh, 
Fast off gifts because I got a I got an Explorer not too long ago with the neck off of it, so I had to glue the neck back in and all that. So you mentioned Subway guitars. So that, going back to Berkeley, um, I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about that because I I mean I know the story, but it would be good for people to hear. Like you were in the Coast Guard, right? Is that where you were? Is that around the time that you were in Berkeley? Yeah, yeah, I was. <clears throat> I was in the Coast Guard for seven years. Uh, the first three and a half years I spent working on a buoy boat on the Mississippi River. What's that do? What's a buoy boat? Well, we set set buoys in in the bends in the river uh-huh. uh, to to mark the navigational channel. You know, so uh, mm. the commercial the commercial river traffic knows to keep right here or keep left there, okay. or whatever. You know, instead of instead of running aground on a sandbar and stuff like that. So. How did he end up doing that? Uh, well, I went to U.S. Coast Guard basic training in Cape May, New Jersey. And when you graduate from basic training, they give you a list of uh, of units that need need a need a body, you know. And uh, yeah. I mean, there's just various different different missions that the Coast Guard performs. You know, I could have gone anywhere. I could have gone to an icebreaker. I could have gone to a navigation station in Iwo Jima. <laughs> you know, I could really? I could have gone uh, to a drug patrol boat or or whatever, you know, but the uh the river boat kind of appealed to me, so uh that's where I ended up, you know. And, so you got to choose. Yeah, more or less, you know. They they kind of uh they kind of uh grade us uh, you know, like kind of, you know, head of the class. To, to the to the bottom, you know. So I I think I was number six out of fifty two or something like that, you know. Oh, that's pretty good. So I got yeah I had well the funny thing yeah I had a lot of choices but I chose pretty unpopular choice you know, cause it's, yeah that's it's, sort of seems like it was probably the sleepy choice right. Well I, well it's pretty hard work you know so uh, but I was I was a youngster back then man so <laughs> didn't bother me didn't bother me now I could probably do it now you know but yeah um, yeah but uh, yeah so I did that for three and a half years you know and, uh, how did that take you to um, to Berkeley? Uh well they got a little tired of me hanging around the boat there after three and a half years so they're like well. You need to do something with your time, you know. So uh, <laughs> I started looking around at different tech schools, and electronics technician school was was open at the time. There were a lot of budget cuts, so a lot of the uh, at that time the uh, Coast Guard was not getting the funding that uh, hmm. they may be getting at this point in time. I'm not sure, but um, so electronics school was open, so. So I went there, I went to uh, Coast Guard Electronic School, which at that point in time was at a place called Governor's Island in in Manhattan. Okay. And so, that probably, like, were you learning about radios and tubes and all that oh, fun stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that, Wicked. Okay. that came in handy. Yeah. that And I got out of uh, that that school and was sent to a... Uh, a unit in Northern California, uh, about forty minutes north of San Francisco, uh-huh. where uh, I was I was to work on um, this ten thousand watt tube radio transmitters for the next three years. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and that's what you did. Like you stayed there for three years working on that 
Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. There's, yeah, it's basically like working on a giant guitar amp. So, uh, it was, <laughs> it was, really, really it, giant guitar amp. It was quite educational, yeah. And uh, <laughs> my, on my days off, which there were many, uh, before I spent a lot of time over in uh, over the bridge in Berkeley, and uh, mm-hmm. sort of landed landed in subway guitars, and that was kind of a base for me, where a lot of things happened. You know, with uh, one just learning guitar mechanics, as I said, and also yeah. just meeting meeting people like. Um, uh, met Joe Lewis Walker in there, and we sat in there one night and jammed for about two hours. And next mm-hmm. thing you know, he was he was calling me up, uh, calling me up to do the odd gigs here and there, you know. So and you know, uh, dropping my name with uh, like San Francisco Blues Festival, he got me on that, you know. So wicked, yeah. And that was just from him walking into the store, like you didn't know him before that. No, I didn't know him before. No, I just kind of met there. Who else was coming through then? Like that was a pretty popular. Like David Lindley was probably around, right? Was he in that area? Oh yeah, Lindley was like sort of a regular, regular in Subway. You know, whenever he'd come up to uh, come up to Bay Area, Lindley Cooter. I met Cooter in there. Uh, oh yeah, we, yeah. We sat there for a minute and sort of played. Pass, pass the guitar, playing a blind lemon lake song. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, actually, fixed an amp that he ended up getting. But uh, Kuda, Kuda coming there, you know, they, they were all there. Other the other guys who I never saw would, you know, uh-huh. would, like you know, Dylan would, Dylan would call up and get things out of there, man. Yeah, you know, oh, yeah. Petty, Petty, Dylan, uh, who else? Uh, John Fogarty would would get something in out of there every now and then. Yeah, it was and, sort of the place to go to get, like, cool use shit, right? Yeah, uh, you know, and, and Dan Electro stuff. I think I think Jimmy Page might have might have called up a couple of times to get some Dan Electro stuff out of there. So. so at that point when you were there working at Subway, like, you were obviously a player already, right? Like, was it something that you'd pursued at all at that point, or were you just, like, a casual player? Oh yeah, I mean, you know, I was I was playing quite a long time by then. Let's see, at least uh, what I mean, you know, at least I've been playing at least ten, fifteen years by then. Like I say, I was still still in the military, but you know, when when time allowed, I was playing at festivals and and going yeah. going coffee house gigs and stuff like that, you know. Was there a good scene for the for like coffee house scene in Berkeley? Uh, yeah, it, it was uh, for a little bit there. You know, mm-hmm. um, the Freight and Salvage was a, was a big uh, big part of that. You know, I used to play there quite a bit. Tell me about like your early early like when you were a kid, like way before all this. Like, what was going on around your house? Like, was there music there and then? And I mean, what what people seem to not really know that much about you is is you've got like deep deep love for for hard rock and for like like particularly thin lizzie i know you're huge on uh so you grew up in mississippi just tell me about you like your childhood like were you around music then oh yeah i mean i was a kid in the 60s you know so yeah um i was a kid actually in the bay area in the 60s man um 
Oh, is that where you were from originally? I was born out there, see. Okay. My, my parents had moved out there. My parents met each other out there, actually. Was your dad in the Army or anything like that, or was it just... He was, you know, but way before my parents met, you know. Okay. Let's see, like, my parents met in, um, what, late 50s, I guess, or something. Like, my dad's friends were like, hey, we know this girl from Mississippi, you know, like, uh, my dad, my dad moved out there when he was like junior high age or something like that, you know. And my mom got out there like in her early twenties, I guess. You know, so uh, it was the thing where you know, I think, I think like my dad's friends were born out there or something, you know. So maybe they kind of they kind of looked upon, the, you know, the Mississippi friends as kind of uh, hayseeds. Oh, okay. <laughs> Somewhat, you know. So they, they're like, told my dad, hey, we know this girl from Mississippi. You should meet her, you know, whatever. So You guys would get along. Yeah, so, you know, so yeah. my, parents, my parents met each other out there. And, um, okay. So, like, we stayed out there. Uh, I stayed there from the time I was born until I was 12, I guess, somewhere there. Oh, okay. But, I mean, my, my traveling life started in the... Early, let's see, mid '60s. Like my first, I remember my kind of my first transcon car trip around 1966 or so to to Mississippi. You know, we were always kind of going back and forth. That's quite a haul. It was, and I thought I had no idea. You know, I thought everybody did that, which was kind, <laughs> which was kind of interesting because a lot of a lot of people in my neighborhood actually did do that. You know, my most mm-hmm. People from my neighborhood were all from Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas, and Oklahoma, you know. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, good cars back in those days, man. Yeah, I guess. So, uh, it was, it was a pretty common, common occurrence, you know. So, uh, I and spent a lot of the sixties and the seventies going, driving cross country, riding cross country, <laughs> I should say, cause I couldn't drive yet, but. And and were you into music as a as a little kid, like when you were you know un, ten and under? Oh yeah, man! Like um, because I had two older brothers. One, you know, I mean, plus, oh, that plus, always helps. Plus, my parents always had music going. You know, my parents, my parents, my dad was a kind of jazz head, you know. So I, I hear stuff like Sonny Rollins and Dave Brubeck and all this kind of stuff when I was a kid, you know, and. um the radio was a big thing. Were you picking up like New Orleans radio and stuff? Nah, well, I was just, just the the Bay Area radio was really good, you know, like uh, oh okay, yeah, like the AM radio is, at first, you know, I the, have pretty vivid memories of just the AM radio and the Stones and the impressions. What were your real favorites that you would just kind of hear that you picked up on? Well, when I was really small, I liked. Uh, it was uh, Robert Parker, Barefootin'. Yeah. Um, I like that one a lot. The, like all that stuff, I say, the McCoys, you know, uh, Hang On Stupid, and uh, the Stones, you know, Satisfaction. I remember when it was new. <laughs> we had a band that lived up the street from us that uh, used to play a lot of Beatles. They would let us check out their rehearsals and stuff, you know. And were you playing at all back then, or were you just like, you just dug the music and stuff? No, nah, I was just like, like dreaming of playing, you know. You know, I might yeah. be, might have had like a little Bud's Bunny ukulele with a, <laughs> you know, a crank in it or something, but I, I, I wanted to wanted to play, you know, but I thought, I thought it was some kind of secret 
thing that, you know, yeah, that you, you had to somehow get in. There's a, there's a weird family story, man, about, uh, one day we're sitting around, I, I was about eight or nine and this guy knocks on the door mm-hmm. and he's selling guitar lessons, right? Classic. So, uh, I, I'm like, nah, we don't want any. So the guy's walking away and, uh, my brother who was, uh, six years older than me at, at the time. He still is. <laughs> my, brother, uh, my brother says, who was that? I said, uh, some guy offering guitar. He ran and caught the guy. Really? And uh, listened, to his, listened to his spiel, yeah, and then asked, asked mom if he could sign up. So she was like, eh, well, so she let him sign up for his lessons. And they uh-huh. they gave you, like, uh, loaned you for nothing this really cheap, plywood acoustic guitar okay and, and uh so he signed up for the lessons i don't i don't remember what the price was whatever but it was like i guess once a week he had to go to this this like sort of they gave the lessons down at like this uh this union hall or something so time went along and uh like what kind of shit was he learning was it like rock songs and stuff or was yeah it like you know like see this is the i don't know this was the thing that didn't really, you know, it was learning every good boy does fine and F-A-C-E and stuff, you know, like. Like sort of, er, like basic theory and stuff. Teaching them, yeah, teaching teach them notes and playing melodies like that and stuff, you know. Which, Pretty boring which, stuff for a kid. Yeah, it didn't seem like a good way for, to learn, you know, but I, I was kind of learning a little bit of it myself, you know. But so then uh, parents got him a better, better cheap plywood acoustic guitar for Christmas. <laughs> So yeah. I inherited the other one, you know. The really shitty cheap guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so my dad says that one night their parents were sitting in the living room and they hear the guitar practicing and they think, yeah. oh, they think, oh, wow, well, he's doing pretty good with his lessons, you know. And then they walk back there to peek, peek in there and see and it turned out it was me. Mm. You know? So I would, I would have been about nine or ten then, you know, but... Yeah. But I, I really didn't take it seriously and didn't learn much of anything. You know, it was something yeah. that I would pick up when it was like not baseball season or something like that. Right. And um, <laughs> one time I saw Roy Clark playing slide with a jelly jar on hee haw, so I had to go try that out. But it was just kind of an on and off thing. I remember kind of getting back into it when I was around 12. Where'd you go after the Bay Area when you were Well, like after Bay Area, we went down to Southern California for about three or four years or something, like junior high and my first couple of years of high school, see? Okay. And um, So what about then? Were you, did you start playing in bands or, or anything, or were you still just kind of music wasn't a thing yet for you? Uh, yeah, well, it didn't quite didn't quite take off yet. I was still, I was in a, I was into electronics and had kind of quit playing baseball. Was into electronics a little bit, radios and stuff, you know. So um, I guess when I got to be about fourteen, I had uh, met some guys down there who, like one of them I know, I had like sort of inherited his older sister's guitar from his older sister's Joni Mitchell would be days. Yeah. <laughs> right because right? that was that was sort of an epidemic you know yeah the, that was a real thing around then for that generation so sure. uh, so then all of a sudden you know a group of about three of us and we all had a 
an older sibling's guitar or something like that. So yeah, then it kind of became a thing. Maybe, you know, it got to be sort of like a group of competition, like, you know, learning this, this Sabbath song or something. Hey man, you know, this, you know, kind of thing. And, yeah. um, my first high school actually had a guitar class. Oh, cool. So now this is where guitar class got fun because in this in this guitar class you started you started off by learning a G chord and a C chord and a B chord and practical stuff, you know? Things that you could use. Yeah, yeah. That was that was that was really practical to me. So mm-hmm. so you start kinda of learning a strum song and sing and and that kind of thing. So, uh, did you learn how to play like, like, um, Zeppelin tunes or anything like that? Or like, was it all just kind of like strumming chords and things like that? Oh yeah. Well, you know, you learn the Zeppelin too, cause you like learn the Zeppelin three tunes, right? You know, like, right. like the stuff with the tangerine and things sure, like that, right. you know, cause there was always a, there was always a guy who was like a little bit been doing it a little bit longer, maybe a year or two older. It was like, here, check this out, you know? So he'd play that, like Zeppelin's version of Gallows Pole or something, you know? Yeah, no, there's a there's a tune that's come in handy for you. You, you still play yeah. that today, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, there, there was just all that kind of, all that kind of exchange, you know, where uh, it was funny for me because there would always be like some guy who was a little bit older who had, who had, one one or two things I could I could pick up off of them, you know. Do you remember any like real moments where you where things really started coming together on as a budding guitar player? Sure, I mean there, there's, there's, there was a lot of them, you know. Just they're still still happening, <laughs> but figuring out little things like um, some Jimmy Reed things, for instance. And it's, it's a funny thing, like I read in the Keith Richards uh, autobiography, he talks about the Jimmy Reed five chord, you know, mm-hmm. where, where Jimmy Reed didn't play. Like if he, if it was an E, like he didn't really play the, he didn't really play the B note, you know, he played the, he played the four note over to, over to five, uh, movement, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was like a, a revelation, man. And it was funny that Keith mentioned learning that from somebody. I think he said he learned it from like, uh, Bobby Sherman or somebody, some kind of sixties crooner guy or something like that. But yeah, that was like a significant thing for me when I kind of figured that out. You know, just just kind of figuring out, you know, playing playing some Jimmy Reed songs and get that going. And was Jimmy Reed like a big one, a big a big influence for you? Like, were you starting to listen to some blues and stuff? Yeah, because that, that was that was a that was a thing my mom turned me on to, man. About oh. nineteen. 19- 71 or so yeah around 1971 my mom got a new pinto (laughs) (laughs) and she got she got an eight track eight track player put in the glove box of her pinto styling and uh and one of the first tapes she got was the best of jimmy reed and i was like what in the hell is this ma wicked so you'd never really heard uh, it before no, not until then. I must have been, uh, let's see, how old was I? Eight, I guess, eight or nine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So well, that one kind of blew your mind. Were there were there other uh, were there other artists that you were starting to hear around then that that were like really opening your eyes? Oh yeah, you know, I, was, I had all the stuff that my brothers were throwing at me. My brothers were uh-huh. throwing everything. You know, like 
Beatles, you know, and all that, but just like Sly and Sly and Band of Gypsies and all that. And Zeppelin, my oldest my oldest brother was the one who sort of turned us both on to the other two on to like, you know, Zeppelin and Band of Gypsies and stuff like that. Uh yeah. And then just kinda went on, you know. Or, yeah. So did you ever have a period where, where you like clicked with friends that were also players and like had bands and stuff or did, did that not really happen for you? Oh yeah. I mean like, you know, the first, the first bunch of guys that I, uh, I started playing with uh, in high school, we, we kind of, we tried to have sort of a band, I think, but I think at that point I was just uh, kind of progressing on it a little bit more. So yeah, and then uh, and then I moved across the country to where? Where did you go next? That was kind of a plague upon mankind. So uh, <laughs> next next thing, I went to Ohio. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Like, at what point did you start getting into acoustic stuff? Like... You know, you mentioned like Blind Lemon Jefferson and and I know you're a big fan of Charlie Patton and stuff too. The funny thing was that it all kind of came at the same time, you know. You know, I got turned on to probably like Robert Johnson at the same time when I started playing guitar, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, around what, age 14, 15 or something, just through my brother, you know. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, because my brother was already into all this Kind of musicology, musical, musicological stuff, you know. Right, he was digging deep. Yeah, yeah, he was already kind of checking out all this stuff. You know, I remember when, like, say, I was thirteen when I first heard the name Charlie Patton. You know, from from my brother asking one of our uncles if he ever seen him. You know, so uh-huh. so that just kind of made me curious about yeah, who is this guy? Good go to the library back then and listen to the record, you know. So you oh, could okay. find you could find cool new music and stuff at the library? Is that where is that where you went? Old music, yeah. I mean yeah. you could yeah, you could find a record like that, you know, at the library. When oh, I that's was cool. High so did your uncle ever see Charlie Patton? Yeah. Um this one uncle said he had seen him when he was a little kid, you know. Wow, that's cool. He was really excited when my brother brought up that name, actually. You sort of talk about it going hand-in-hand with, like, learning just regular guitar, rock guitar, whatever else you were learning. But, like, those styles don't really cross over that much. You know, like, doing a Charlie Patton thing on the acoustic doesn't really translate to an electric guitar all that well. You must. Have... Well, so you, start, so you start, like, diving into Howlin' Wolf, you know, and then 
right. you kind of get the, get the picture where, oh, yeah, okay, you know, Wolf was just kind of turning, turning up, Patton's doing his version of, you know, Patton's thing, uh-huh. turn up, you know. Yeah. I mean, you've kind of absorbed all that stuff and it, it's like your own thing now, but like you must have gone pretty deep into that style at some point, like when you were in your, in your teens or early twenties or something, because you'd obviously learned it. You've, you've developed it into whatever it is that you do on your own now, but like you must've got pretty deep into that stuff for a while. eh? Oh yeah. I mean, there was a point in time where, you know, I kind of stopped Stopped playing electric guitar around 1984, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 83, 84, something like that, you know. But went into this, this big unplugged phase before there was such a thing. You, know? <laughs> you predated the unplugged by seven years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because my brother, my brother observed the fact that when he saw me again, you know, I could play so much better. Yeah, right. You, you can you can evolve a lot on your own, but it but you kind of forget, right? Like how how good you might be getting at something, and and then somebody that hasn't seen you for a while. Yeah. You, uh, By that time, yeah, I'd, I'd met some kids and started trying to play player. I remember I remember a first gig sort of in Ohio where it was like uh, playing playing a cast party for the drama club. Uh-huh. And and it was like 1979, and like disco was all the rage. But I didn't know no disco, you know. So, <laughs> <laughs> so they they hated us because I I didn't know anything, man. I knew like some Stones and Lizzie and stuff like that, you know, Hendrix or something. Uh-huh. And they 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 absolutely hated it, man. You know, so uh, I was like, wow, right. there's my first first sort of uh, your first shitty gig. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. brutal. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, then the, the next year, so it's got to be a thing. Like my dad, um, my dad, man, I felt so bad for him. He, he said it got to where he'd say, he'd say, "Come up here," you know, because my room was downstairs in the basement. He's, he said, "Come up here, I got to talk to you for a minute." We're moving. So, so, so yeah. So I get up there, <laughs> I go upstairs, and I kind of beat him in the punch. I go, "Well, where are we moving to now?" <laughs> <laughs> and took all the air out of him because he was like, you know, preparing to drop his big bomb on me, you know. And, um, so we moved to Illinois. Wow. And uh, and that was that was uh, interesting. I got there and Midwest man was Illinois. Um, it was cool, man, because like there were kids there, you know, like my age who were uh, who were into. Uh, you know, like Muddy Waters was still alive and stuff then. Right. So there, there were kids there my age who were into that as much as you know, just like cowbell rock. You know, so uh, right. I found some cool kids to hang out and play music with. And did you get a chance to see any of those guys, like that generation of Chicago blues guys that was? Oh still, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Muddy who, Waters. You did, eh? Muddy Waters, my Magic Slim, who else? I, I got down to Maxwell Street because my uncle William was a uh, kind of a junk a junk dealer, kind of like Fred Sanford kind of guy, you know, recycler. Mm-hmm. And he uh, he knew that all that all that stuff pretty well, so he'd take us around there and uh, 
got to see some guys playing down there, you know, before all before all that was gone. You had some history with Bo Diddley, too. I, I can't remember if, were you just opening for him, or did you actually play in his band for a while? Uh, I did a tour. I did a tour with him back in 06 where I was, uh, we had sort of a house band, you know, and uh, and so I would I would do a set before Bo, and mm-hmm. then... And then I played, and then I played guitar in maracas and <laughs> with Bo. Tell me, a, tell me a Bo Diddley story, like being in a in a band for Bo Diddley. What was that all about? Well, what, once the one cool thing was, you know, it, it kind of started off kind of rocky because I was, uh, I was, op- I was, uh, I was uh, on the tour. I was deemed too loud for the, the uh, for the situation, you know. So I'm, so I'm trying to figure out all this stuff man I'm, I'm trying to get all these five watt amps together and stuff like that you know and, and make that make that work you know and they're just giving me hassle but Bo liked it man you know Bo liked Bo liked my stuff he'd be back in the dressing room it would be like these art center dressing rooms where they have the uh the monitors you know in the yeah. in the audio monitors in the dressing room so he'd be back there with his tape recorder going and on these things like the old old southern DJs where they'd have the music going, the record going, and then all of a sudden the DJ would talk over the record, and, you know, and he's doing uh-huh. this he's doing this to my set, you know. Really? Right? And then <laughs> Yeah, and then playing it playing it back for me, you know, after so uh, That's outrageous. So yeah, so we we got to be uh we got to be fast friends there and uh both found out uh, along the way that I was a pawn shopper. So uh that that became a thing like like if you go and pawn shop and let me know, you know. So okay, he was a bit of a de- degenerate pawn shopper too, right? Like he would, he would. Oh yeah, man. Stock up on tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the funny thing was, you know, I, I was out there. I was, I was getting guitars and amps and stuff, you know. And uh, Bo was buying stuff like silver, silverware sets and <laughs> jewelry and stuff, stuff like that. So like, by the end of the tour, we had amassed the. Uh, good collection of stuff you know so he would come home with like a whole new kitchen oh, oh yeah well, yeah 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 you had all the silverware and all stuff man you know but yeah it was, that was great man uh, you know pawn shopping across the usa with bo diddley you know you couldn't have told me when i was 15 years old that i'd be doing that you know yeah no kidding and was he still pretty together i i, I remember seeing him like pretty near the end of his life and he was it was hit and miss, I guess I'd, I'd have to say, like compared to what he used to be. But how how did he come across to you at that age? Was he holding it together pretty good? Oh yeah, definitely. You know, he had a lot. Of, he had a lot of uh, good tales to tell in the in the bus and stuff like that. Like that. Yeah. You ended up in Chicago, and man, you're moving all over the place. Uh, tell me about how things led up to making your first record, because that was I remember when that record came out. That was a that was a big deal. Like there was. That was sort of like I don't know the tail end of whatever unplugged. it was. I guess it was sort of a <laughs> yeah. tied into the unplugged thing, right? And I mean, it had yeah. it had an impact on your life because it sort of pigeonholed you in a spot that you didn't probably feel that comfortable in of being like just an acoustic guy. Yeah. So, like, what was the whole process like of that first record for you? Um, well, I mean, like that was that was a thing where uh, you know the the uh working up working up to the first record and that whole process of paying homage to to my mississippi roots mm-hmm. and all that uh 
you know, it was a, that was kind of a big thing for me. So, mm-hmm. you know, it just, just, um, after a few years, it, it happened, uh, relatively soon after, I guess soon after I got out of the military, a couple of years, you know, uh, how it, how it came about basically was, uh, I had, uh, well, you know, I, I'd been playing around the Bay area for quite a while and, Mm-hmm. Just you know that that kind of thing, man. You know, making flyers, yeah, getting a mail mailing list, mailing postcards. Hey, I'm playing here, I'm playing there. You know, getting getting the odd an odd opening gig here and there. I got opening gigs out in Marin County for different to the the big man. I opened for the big man once, Clarence Clemens. Oh, cool. Yeah, I opened for Stephen Bruton. Oh, wow, That's really cool. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that guy's awesome. Uh, you know, things like that. Open for Ali Farkature at a really Great American Music Hall. Yeah, like that was like '94, something like that. So you're getting some you pretty know, good gigs. Uh, yeah, you know, getting uh, getting a little name out there and stuff. So, uh, did you have a did you have a, a decent following of people that would come out to your shows and stuff? Uh, I think I did, man. You know, I mean, it's hard to say. It's, yeah, you know, an interesting following. You know, like. Um, a friend of mine turned Kirk Hammett on to what I was doing way back then, and he would he would come check out. Really, you know, little bar gigs I was doing and stuff. Yeah, you know, stuff like yeah. that. So, um, I had a friend who was a bartender slash booking agent at a jazz club there in Oakland called Yoshi's. Yeah, sure. And they they would uh, basically they sort of. Um, delegated him to book opening acts for various shows. So mm-hmm. Taj Mahal was going to play in there for three or four nights. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my buddy, Michael James, booked me to open those shows. People saw me there who eventually sort of became my management mm-hmm. and uh, tried tried pitching me around here and there. And somehow there, there came through a... Uh, Probably through some kind of connection with Keb Mo at that point in time that came through a uh, connection with the guy who was heading that OK uh, imprint. Oh right, at Sony. yeah, at Sony. So Keb Mo's uh, album had ju- had probably just come out. His first record is that about the same time? Yeah, it had probably been out. Maybe the second one was out by then. I don't, I'm not sure. Okay. But yeah, I got on their radar. At, yeah. at that point in time and uh had you ever was that your first studio experience or had you recorded before that uh you know i recorded like just some some tapes and stuff to to you know uh solicit gigs and stuff like yeah. That. yeah yeah Where, like where'd you record it yeah it was in san francisco uh uh-huh. really cool studio you know um, yeah. i think it was a little bit a little bit overkill for what i was doing but uh taj mahal guested on it who else was on that record dr john's on it too right isn't he no, no, just well. Taj is on it, and then a couple of guys from the from Bay Area that uh, that I know. A uh, guy named um, what was his name? Chris Chris Siebert, who was a really awesome like stride piano player, and uh, okay. he, he he's run this band called Levee Smith and the Red Hot Skillet Lickers forever. You know, nice. But uh, he was uh, he was a guy I, I'd known out there for quite a while, and. Uh, we were trying to get Brownie McGee to play on there too, but uh, really, Brownie, yeah, Brownie was kind of terminally ill by that point in time, so uh, I didn't really follow up on that. Was he was he somebody that you knew from before? Yeah, um, I'm not really sure how I ended up meeting Brownie. I, well, 
I know Brownie used to come in Subway to get a guitar repaired every now and then for uh-huh. one thing. So I met him then, but I think uh, I think I was on some of those shows. We we do a lot of uh, different sort of benefit shows and stuff up there at Yoshi's. And I think I was on one of those shows with him up there, and uh, probably met him up there, you know, in in, in the musical capacity. But uh-huh. he used to live not not far from where me and my ex-wife were living at the time in Oakland. So uh, so we and our, our friend Michael from Yoshi's would, would just walk over to Brownie's, uh, walk over to Brownie's garage on like Saturday afternoon and sit there and listen to him tell us about, you know, the first time he met Lead Belly or something like that, you know? Oh, man, that's wicked. The first record, was it uh, like, were you given free reign or was somebody saying like, we want you to make this kind of record or... Like how how did it turn out the way that it turned out? Like very, there's a quite a bit of solo stuff. There's a few like more band tracks, as I remember, but not much. Like it's basically like a solo record with a few guests, right? Uh, yeah, I guess it was more or less just kind of free reign, just whatever, whatever I was kind of playing live at the time, you know, on solo mm. gigs. Uh, it's pretty wicked sounding uh, record. Like it's so. I remember hearing it when it came out. I was really into it, and like. Most people have a have like em- embarrassing first recordings, but that kicks ass, man. That was a good one. <laughs> uh, it's pretty embarrassing to me, actually. Is it? I mean, it could it could have been a lot better, but uh, I, yeah. I had I had I had managers trying to play producer and this kind of thing stuff, and, oh, man. I, and you know, just they're just sound. Uh, you know, the instruments in particular. I I know uh, how they really sound. You know, really could have been better. They, yeah, how they came out. Yeah. But still, for a first time, like you'd never really been in the studio, so you wouldn't necessarily like you could probably hear how you wanted to, it to sound in your head, but but actually accomplishing that would be tricky, probably. Yeah. Oh, I made better records at home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. I, you know, I got you know, like you have tapes, man. I I made better <laughs> better sounding. I made better sounding shit at home with my Fostex X15. Yeah. Yeah, those things are badass, man. You can make good records on those. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, so that kind of, that record though, when it came out, um, like I definitely heard about it, you know, up in Canada, like it must've been promoted pretty well. Like what was the, what was that like for you? Were you, you, you were probably suddenly touring all over this, all over the country, right? All over the world probably, right? Yeah. You know, it, it wasn't promoted that well. In fact, uh, for some reason or another, I, I suspect to do with like other artists management or something, maybe, I don't know. For some reason or another, that record was not released in England until like three years, two or three years after, after oh. it was released. Like yeah. the only way they could get it in England was as an import for like the first two years or something, you know? Oh, that's no good. Yeah, I mean, it's terrible. What the what's the third largest English speaking country in the world, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. or maybe second. I don't know. Yeah, but were you starting to tour over there and stuff as well, like around that time? Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. And spending time in Europe because you spent a lot of time, like in 
in Western Europe and like Scandinavia and stuff, right? Uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time here. My ex-wife was from Switzerland, so we spent uh, a lot of time there. Did the OK thing just kind of fall apart, or did that label end up folding? Like, what happened with that label? Uh, so yeah, it, it did sort of fall apart. It's just like everybody got dropped or something. Um, it got back to me through different people from the Sony organization. They're like, basically, you know. Michael Jackson spent too much money making a video, so <laughs> You're so we have to, so we have to cut a few programs, you know, like that, yeah. pretty much. Okay, yeah, yeah. Where did that leave you? Like, did you did you start immediately start working kind of as an independent artist? Then, like, I, I know, like, motivational speaker came out probably seven or eight years later, right? There was oh yeah, nine years later or something, you know. It wasn't too much longer that I got another label deal mm-hmm. with, with Ryko. Um, I ended up playing up at the Folk Alliance yeah. in, when it was in Toronto. Okay. And Joe Boyd, uh, the, the producer, the producer Joe Boyd was there. And uh, I don't know that I met him there, but he definitely saw me play there and decided he wanted to... Uh, try and do something with me so cool so how how was that experience oh it was good man it was pretty good you know i was still trying to get get some things together and all of a sudden you know i'm i'm trying to write songs you know i never thought about that aspect of it at all you know oh yeah so yeah is the first record it's all like traditional and and blues stuff right is is there nothing that you wrote on that Some, some tunes i tunes i wrote on there but um you know, when he makes made the second record, I just had to think about it some more. You know, like well, and it's just been a steady sort of thing where mm-hmm. you know trying to trying to think of think of it in that, in those terms, which was something I didn't think of as a teenager. Was Joe Boyd like? Was he pushing you to write your own music, or did he not care? No, that was never a, really much of an issue. I don't think. No, I did two records for Ryko, but. The the company sort of got acquired and and changed and all that whole thing kind of changed and they blew all their cash on the Frank Zappa catalog as I remember it is what happened right yeah was, yeah there was that so then they had to make some kind of deal with with uh, who was it Chris Blackwell or somebody man. that's right yeah he's somebody swallowed it up and everything kind of fell yeah. apart because I was working with Kelly Joe Phelps then and he was on Ryko and yeah right right and it just kind of vanished it was just gone all of a sudden as I remember yeah it, it was really good for a while there though man like the uh, it was back when you know still that whole thing when like labels worked a record you know and right yeah. If I if I went to England, you know, I was doing this. I was on TV. I was doing uh, in stores and all kind of things like that. You know, so yeah. So uh, when did you start? When did you start working your electric stuff back into what you were doing? Because on the second record, and then were you bringing a band out with you after that too? Uh, just kind of sporadically, I guess. Uh-huh. You know, um, when whenever I, when I could, you know, when I could. Get it? That's, somehow I got into the position where, which is it's it's just kind of funny, you know, where everybody else can go out with their band, you know, but I can't. <laughs> I'm 
I'm not really sure why, you know, but... Um, you mean, like, there's expectations for you to be, like, a solo guy? I, I, well, there's that, you know, I guess, but... Yeah, it's just it's just kind of weird, man, you know? Yeah. Then that, you know, and there's just personnel issues all the time, whatever, you know, I had a guy... I had a guy get us get us busted going into Canada carrying ecstasy into Canada and stuff, man. Oh my God! That, tell me that story. <laughs> you, you, you think you know a guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you, you yeah. think well, you think you know a guy. I mean, you know, it was just it's one of those things where you, sometimes you have people who just gotta push, push, you know, push the uh, buttons and. Anytime, you know, you say, well, you know, there's some guidelines here, man, and you can't be doing this and you can't do that. You know, he. That's a big button to push. Well, yeah, he pushed the button. He pushed it. But before that, man, if you got, you know, he got a, he got a, got gigs canceled because of this or that. You know, he was, what was he smoking a joint in a trailer where the, the governor of Utah wanted to come back and meet the band after a gig. <laughs> You know, and he spoke at a joint in a trailer where they were going to bring the governor of Utah. It's Utah, man. Come on, you know, right? You know, we had somewhat of a relationship with the Almond Brothers band at the time. They had some rules about uh, drinking in, in public view and stuff, you know, and he had to test that out, too, you know. So, oh, wow. I mean. Yeah, that's it's hard enough doing doing what you do, like being out on the road and stuff. That's a hard thing to do at the best of times. And then if you got somebody just being a bit of an idiot the whole, the whole time, just yeah, to, you know, and, and like we're coming in, we're coming into Canada on another artist's work permit, and you know, right. and he had that thing happen. So I mean, okay. you know, we run run into that kind of stuff, you know, and uh, yeah. Well, that's, just, a, uh, that's a drag. But, you know, I've, I've, I've kind of managed to have a pretty steady, pretty steady unit, unit the last eight or nine years. Uh, yeah, you got a great thing just, going now. Yeah, well, just now, you know, we've, we've all kind of run into this thing where, you know, we have, we have elderly parents and, and <laughs> stuff going on. So, uh-huh. so we kind of had to slow down on that for, for a minute, you know, but yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's a it's a struggle, man. You know. So. Yeah, I hear you. What about the uh, the project you did with Luther and um, uh, Jimbo Mathis, Luther Dickinson, and what was that called? The the South Memphis. The South Memphis String Band. String Band. Yeah. Was that just a kind of a thing that you just threw together, or was that like a band for a while? Oh yeah, it was definitely a thing that we just kind of threw together. You know. Well, mm-hmm. we we go through cycles of when when we can get along or not. You know. So. I mean, is that yeah. a is that a rocky rela- relationship going oh, way back? Oh yeah, it's, it's rocky as hell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's rocky as Gibraltar, man. Yeah, um, yeah it, it's part of the yeah, other. That's part of the, the South Memphis string band stick. You know, it's uh-huh. it's this thing. Yeah, everybody thinks we don't get along, and, and so you got um, to work there's, there. There's yeah, oh yeah. There's 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 eternal friction, you know. So. Do you go back um, with Luther? Like, were you doing gigs with the all, with the North, North Mississippi All Stars at some point, or where, where do you know him from? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, the thing. Let's see. Um, my old one. I, I really didn't. You know, I really didn't quite gel with my old management. I think we we got some different opinions about who I am musically or not. But but one of the. Uh, 
one of the better suggestions that they made was that uh, I work with Jim Dickinson on the, uh, let's see, what record was that? Start with the Soul record back in 99. That was how I met Luther, basically, through through Jim, you know. Okay. So uh, tell me tell me about uh working with 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 um with Jim like what a history that he's got and and a huge part of Memphis music and kick-ass piano player like was he playing and was he uh, like did he learn shit from him as far as like Yeah, you know, I mean the biggest thing I learned from Dickinson probably is just to be who you are, you know, more yeah. or less. I mean like that's that was the thing. I mean that's that's the, I guess part of the attraction about Memphis Mm-hmm. Because the musicians that gravitate or gravitated to Memphis were all all the the kind of guys who would wouldn't you know they wouldn't really fit in anywhere else. Right. Uh, yeah. at, at that at various points in time, and um, so like here's 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 the thing. The thing with Dickinson was you know where you figure out like you can work with a guy um, first first day of. Uh, First day of recording, Dickinson puts uh, some little rubber figurines of Rocky and Bullwinkle up on the console, right? Yeah. So I said, excuse me, I got to go out to the truck. I went out to my truck, and I got my little figurine of Fearless Leader and brought him. <laughs> I brought him back in there and completed the, you know, completed the code. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah. That's all it takes like, yeah. sometimes, right? Yeah, Just I can work with this guy. Yeah. Right? Did he did he put a band around you, or did did you get did you use the band that you were currently playing with when you worked with him? We we kind of agreed and disagreed on a couple of people, but yeah, no, you know that was just more or less a kind of studio thing. He uh, he did. I think Dickinson did dig up Frosty to play some drums on a couple of tunes. That was a, who's that? Frosty Smith was like. Uh, Frosty Smith was a drummer for Lee Michaels back in the seventies. Oh, you know, wicked! Legendary figure there around Austin. What's happening lately for you? Like the band is kind of laying low for the time being, just dealing with family stuff and whatever. Yeah, there's all that kind of thing, man. You know, and I, I'm, uh, I'm in like booking hell, record hell, all that kind of thing. You know, just trying to, still trying to find the the. Uh, Right, recording situation, which I may have going on. You know, it's just a matter of uh, sort of finding the time to get started on that, I guess. Mm-hmm. And and just uh, you know, because I made this, I made this forty-five. Uh, I love that forty-five. Yeah, that that I thought was going to uh, turn into an album, but it turns out it was just an audition. <laughs> really. <laughs> You know, when it's like, hey, when are we going to make the record? It was like, well, the kind of record I need to make on you, you wouldn't want to make and all this and that. You know, oh, so. shit. Well, it's good to not even get involved then. So I have to, I have to, I'm still trying to get all that figured out. I still got plenty of traveling and stuff to do. I just came back from France uh, uh-huh. a couple of days, a couple of days ago, playing a gig over there with Phil Wiggins and Corey Harris and, Oh, cool. That would be cool to do something with those guys, man. Corey Harris and Phil Wiggins. That would be a good little unit. You three. That would kick ass. Yeah, we actually we actually had a good a good little set there. You know, yeah. Yeah. You didn't record it at all? Uh, it may be recorded or something. You know, I don't know. Yeah. 
I don't know. I, I hate recording, man. You know? I know you do. That's crazy. I, I guess I get sort of, you know, perfectionist about it or something. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, I mean, different people respond to it differently, but I don't know, considering the, the amount that you dislike it, you've, you've, you've made some great sounding records, so you must be doing something right. <laughs> yeah, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Man, thanks so much for, for doing this. Like that, yeah, it's good to, good to kind of catch up and see what's going on and hear some of the old stories. I love it. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm full of old stories. Yeah, you got, you got some gems, man. <laughs> Yeah, man. I hope to see you before too long. And uh, um, thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah. You know, thank you, man. Okay. Well, we'll talk to you soon, I hope. And uh, take her easy. All right. Take care, Steve. Okay. Thanks, Alvin. Later. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. That was my conversation with my old pal, Alvin Youngblood Hart. So great to talk to him. And I hope you enjoyed hearing his stories. And we will see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. So long. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Music Makers and Soul Shakers